0: I want you to imagine several seemingly ridiculous scenarios with me. Imagine you, uh, you go to watch a comedian's show, but the comedian doesn't tell any jokes. Seriously, let's just pretend you, you go to a comedian's show, but he, he doesn't tell a joke. I want you to imagine you call a plumber, but the plumber shows up and he doesn't know the basics of Plumbing. Seriously, you looked him up online, you, you called him and he came, but he, he doesn't have the basic skills of a plumber. He looks at your toilet with as much ignorance as you look at your toilet. <laughs> or how about this? Your employer sends you to a professional development training. You, you get there and the trainers don't know the subject matter. You're shocked, but it, it's true. that the, the literal topic of the course, the training material itself, they flatly don't understand. Now what do these scenarios have in common? What they have in common is the appearance of something but not the essence of that thing. Uh, the comedian it turns out isn't comedian. The plumber turns out isn't a plumber. And the trainers turns out aren't trainers. There is a A self-identification with something. I'm a plumber. But there is not the substance of that thing. Friends, if you don't know how to fix a toilet, you're not a plumber. No matter what you say, no matter what you think, no matter what you advertise. What does this have to do with anything? It actually has everything to do with the most important question in your life. Are you... Right with God. Now you may think you're right with God. You may confess or identify yourself in that way. But are you? How can you know? You know, you can know if a plumber's a plumber, if he can do plumbing. It's a sermon about plumbers today. (laughs) What is it that validates or shows or proves the reality that someone is in fact right with God? James is going to speak to this very question and here is what I want to convince you of this morning. Here's what the sermon's about. What kind of faith is real faith? Saving faith, only faith that works, that transforms, that obeys. Anything else is false and worthless. Would you turn with me to James chapter 2 verse 14? James chapter 2, verse 14. James is towards the end of your Bible. If you're new with us this morning, we're working through the book of James, as is our habit. We let the Bible typically set the agenda for us in the morning, and we work our way through God's Word, text by text. So this morning, we're in James chapter 2, verse 14, and let me begin by reading it for you. It says this, "'What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works?' Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So there's a question at the head of this that governs all the rest. Uh, Verse 14 is the topic sentence. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That's the question of the day. Can faith without works save? Can faith without works lead to eternal life? That's the question. And the answer is definitely not. No. You're like, well, that was a short sermon. I I know. The answer is that faith without works is like a plumber who doesn't know how to fix a toilet. And the rest of the passage is going to show us that by way of four different points. First, by way of an illustration in verses 15 through 17. Second, by way of an objection in verses 18 through 20. Third, by way of examples in 21 through 25. And then fourth, the bottom line in verse 26. And just by way of some definitions, when James talks about faith here, he's talking about professed faith in Jesus Christ. Another way to say verse 14 would be, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he believes in Jesus Christ but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? So this is a word to those who would say, I'm a Christian. And when James talks about works, what he's referring to there is the totality of good works that Christians are called to in passages like Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We are saved by grace through faith, but we are saved for or unto what? Good works. So good works like obedience to the law of God. Good works like... Faithfulness in the various callings of God upon your life in the family or at work or at church or at school. Good works like character transformation according to the fruit of the Spirit. Good works like seeking to propagate the gospel or orienting your priorities according to the priorities of God. Good works like like a life trajectory away from sin and selfishness and pride and toward God and godliness and love for His church and the lost. Honestly, good works means everything you see and read in the Bible and hear about on Sunday morning in sermons and and see for yourself in godly examples around you and from church history. You're You're looking increasingly like that. You're trending increasingly toward that. What good is it, my brothers? What good is it redeeming grace? If someone says he has faith and he does not have works, can that faith save him? James says no, and he shows us first by way of illustration. Pick up in verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James' simple illustrations are so compelling. So if a brother or sister doesn't have the basic necessities of life, let's say food or clothing, and somebody was to merely say to them, hey, blessings, blessings, bro. Hope things go well for you. Hope you're warmed and well-filled. I, I am praying for you. What good is that? It's no good. They need a coat. They need food. Mere words in that scenario are useless. Mere words don't accomplish anything. So too it is with faith, James says. A confession of faith is useless. A a confession of faith is useless. It's not salvific. It will not save if it is by itself, if it remains alone, if it is not accompanied by works. Now, it turns out, brothers and sisters, that this scenario... It is more than just a handy illustration by James, you know, kind of like the equivalent of "Hey, asking for a friend." Um, this is actually a a real, and concrete, and primary good work that we must walk in. Listen to First John three sixteen. By this we know that by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. The Apostle John says, love of brethren, which, which looks like real commitment and care, is a test for whether or not the love of God actually beats within your breast. And this is a carbon copy of the scenario in James, Right? If your brother or sister in Christ is in need and you close your heart against him, i.e. you don't meet that need and you instead just say be warmed and filled, how does God's love abide in you? The answer is that it doesn't. Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed or truth. I, I hope you can see the similarity there. We-, we can't be mere hearers, mere word and talk. We have to be doers. Deed and truth. And actually, many commentators, and I agree, see in James' words here an echo of the words of Christ. Just listen to this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And, and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Matthew 25, 31, and following. Who are Jesus' brothers? The least of these my brothers. Who are Jesus' brothers? those who have faith in Jesus Christ, Christians. And what Jesus teaches here is that those who demonstrate their faith in Him by loving His people, they are the ones who are ushered into eternal life. But the others, those who don't, are cast into everlasting fire. And so it turns out that James is doing more than just saying, hey, you might think about this nifty illustration. No, brothers and sisters, he's actually giving us a concrete example of a primary work that we must walk in if our faith is to be recognized as the real deal. We must love one another impartially. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, last week. We must care for the least of these among us. Widows and orphans represent the least of these in the church. Chapter 1, verse 27. We must ensure that there is not a needy person among us. God forbid anyone at Redeeming Grace ever go without their basic needs met. What does James say? If you say you're a Christian but you don't love the church, you're not a Christian. That's what he's saying. Now he's going to say more than that, but not less than that. If a primary indicator that a plumber is a plumber is that he knows how to fix toilets, then a primary indicator that a Christian is a Christian is that you get it and your life displays it. The Jesus Christ Church is to be at the core of your love, your care, your concern, your affection, your devotion. Now, what does that mean for you? Well, at a minimum, it means you're, you're a part of a church. It, it means you don't view the church as something ancillary or tangential to the faith, kind of a I love Jesus but not the church thing. That's totally foreign to the New Testament. So at a minimum, it means you're part of a church, but more than that, it means you actually come to church. And more than that, it means you actually invest in the church. You invest your money and your time and relationships and prayer. And you take effort to reflect the values of the church in living on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means, at a minimum. Now, remember, the main question James is asking is this. Can faith without works save The answer is no, and he's proving it by way of four points. Now, the first was an illustration, and we just covered it. Let's move to the second. And here he deals with an objection to his thesis from an imaginary uh, objector. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me again. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What's going on here is an effort by an imaginary conversation partner who who brings up an objection. And the objection is essentially this. Faith and works don't have to go together. You have faith. I have works. Basically, there's just no need to tie these things together. Works don't have to necessarily accompany faith. But to that, James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. What is he saying? He's saying that works show faith. Works and faith have to go together, actually, because works are the demonstration that faith actually exists. Works are a demonstration that faith actually exists. Show me your faith apart from your works. Brothers and sisters, you can't. Faith is invisible. Faith is an invisible spiritual reality. But works display that reality. That's why James says, I will show you my faith by my works. My works will will display my faith. My works will, will make my faith visible. And then he points to this absolute inadequacy of a bare profession of faith. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Believing that God is one is a it's a reference back to the Shema in Deuteronomy. That's a confession that every Christian with a Jewish background would know. Christians with a Jewish background like James's author, they would know it by heart. The Shema goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a confession from Deuteronomy 6. It's a confession of faith in God. The equivalent for us would be us saying something like, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen. I believe. But James says even the demons believe that. And they shudder take that to mean demons knowing that their judgment is coming they have a fear of God the point is that a right confession of faith isn't a proof of real faith the point is that a right confession of faith isn't proof of real faith and do you know what this means it means you can't bank on a particular moment in time that you can go back to where you remember that you accepted the Lord, and based on that alone, consider the matter of your spiritual destiny secure. You can't do that. You know why? Because merely remembering that you've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't mean that you have faith that saves. Faith that saves is faith that works. And now James wants us to See some examples. This is the the third way he wants to show us that faith without works isn't the real deal. Examples. Look at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And Scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Here's what I want to do. I want to talk first about a patriarch, and then I want to talk about a prostitute. Let's look at the patriarch first. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Here we go. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Now let me just say, this is a section where if you're not listening to me clearly, you're going to think I say things that I don't say. And if you're not listening to me clearly, you're not going to benefit from this sermon how God would have you to benefit And so I want you to perk up and listen and really pay attention. Because James is using justified in a different way than we typically think of when we use this word. What do we typically think of when we use this word? We think of the gift of righteousness that we receive through faith alone. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says we are justified declared righteous in the sight of God, and that comes through faith alone. Our sin is paid for by Jesus on the cross. His righteousness is credited to us. That, brothers and sisters, is justification. That, brothers and sisters, is true. And that, in fact, was true of Abraham. In Genesis 15, when God made these incredible salvation promises to Abraham that would come through his son Isaac... Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteousness through it. Here's the quote. God made promises in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 15, and then in verse 6, and Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Salvation by faith alone. Amen? And this is the paradigm for salvation that's picked up in the New Testament. Turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans is right after the Gospels and then Acts. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... In other words, for the Jew, or also for the uncircumcised, the Gentile, us. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised, after his obedience of faith? It it was not after. It was before he was circumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Oh my goodness, could it be any clearer that Abraham was justified by faith alone and we are justified by faith alone. I hope it's incredibly clear to you. Well then what in the world does James mean when he says... Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? Are we to think, as some supposed, that James and Paul disagree? No, that's complete foolishness and hermeneutical laziness. Scripture does not contradict itself. The truth of the matter is twofold. Number one, James and Paul are talking about salvation from different vantage points. Paul is protecting against the heresy of thinking you can be saved by works. James is protecting against the heresy of thinking you can be saved and yet not live a life of good works. <laughs> Number two, James is using justification differently. Justification in Scripture can also mean something is revealed or something is demonstrated or something is proved to be. Uh, for instance, in Matthew eleven nineteen, Jesus says, Wisdom is justified by her deeds. What does he mean? Well, it means that wisdom is revealed by deeds. That's that's how he's using the word justified. Deeds reveal whether or not there's wisdom. Deeds prove whether or not there's wisdom. You can say you're wise all day long, but your life is going to reveal whether or not you're actually wise. So what James is saying here is that there was an event in Abraham's life that revealed the reality of his faith, proved the reality of his faith. And what was that event? His willingness to offer up his own son, Isaac, in obedience to God. As a test of his faith and foreshadowing God's willingness to offer up his own son, God calls Abraham to offer up Isaac to give him back to the Lord. Imagine that. And Abraham, despite the unbelievable costliness, says, okay, Lord, I'll follow your word. Now, of course, God is not going to have Abraham actually sacrifice Isaac, so please don't get tripped up on that. The point is, This is a demonstration that Abraham really is righteous. Abraham really is a believer. How do we know? Because of his obedience. Because of his works, to use James' language. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Completed in the sense of reaching its intended goal. Faith is never intended to remain alone. And thus the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The scripture was fulfilled in the sense of being brought to its ultimate significance. He was declared to be righteous by faith, Genesis 15. And he was revealed to, And that was revealed to be wonderfully true by his costly obedience, Genesis 22. And he was called the friend of God. So just full stop. Don't you want to be called the friend of God? I do. Then you must follow in his steps. You must not think that all is well merely because you profess faith. Your profession must be justified, proved true by your works. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And you see that not only in the patriarch's life, but also in the life of a prostitute. Look at verse 24 again. And in the same way, In other words, the same truth is being taught. Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Now, Rahab lived in Jericho, that that city in Canaan. That was the first city God gave to Israel. And if you don't remember the story, Rahab was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. Um, God is about to give Jericho to Israel. But before Israel took Jericho, two spies went in the city to To check it out and they stayed at Rahab's house and they they share with her everything that's about to happen. And based on their testimony, Rahab switches her allegiance away from her city that she knows will face doom. And toward the Lord God of Israel. You know what this is? It's a picture of faith. Rahab believes the testimony of Israelite spies and James points out that her faith is shown to be real because it's accompanied by costly and risky action. The king was told that these spies were in the city. He was told that they were at her house. He, in fact, sends messengers, emissaries to her, instructing her to give them up. She deftly, courageously hides them and misdirects the king's messengers so that they can get away. Now, this was at unbelievable personal cost to herself. It would have been zero risk to give up the spies. Why didn't she do it? Because she was convinced that their words were true. Her city was doomed to fail, and she would placed all of her eggs in the basket of the one true God, and her actions demonstrate that point. That's James' point. We might say it like this. Her actions didn't save her. Her actions demonstrated that she was, in fact, saved. A couple of things come to my mind just as I think about Abraham and Rahab. And, and the first is just that God's salvation is available to all. Praise God. Abraham, he was the father of Israel. Abraham, he is the revered figure of the entire Bible. Even now, those who aren't Christians or Jews know and respect Abraham. Oh, he's a revered figure. Rahab is a prostitute. A random sinner and a real sinner. But both believe the promises of the one true God and so are saved. This means there is gospel hope for you this morning. God doesn't only offer Himself to the great and significant, but to the lowly, the normal, the real sinners, and the stuck. He comes to us where we are, and He he tells us through His gospel that we are a part of a world system that is soon going to pass away. And I don't know if you've thought about this, but every time you hear the gospel, it's like when the spies... Talked with Rahab. They leveled with her and they told her, This place is going to be leveled, but you can have a place among us. You can have a place with the people of God upon whom His favor rests. You can have a place with us. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, God wants you to hear a very similar message. This world is not forever, this world is not going to last. There is a king who is coming, who is going to put down all the kings and kingdoms of this world. And he will establish an eternal kingdom, a righteous kingdom, a beautiful kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. And you can be there. But like Rahab, you have got to renounce your allegiance to this world and join yourself to God. And you do this through turning from your sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ to pay for your sin and to give you eternal life. I do want to remind you this offer is made to you every day. It's being made to you right now. And I want to just ask you, what will you do with it? I pray that you would act. Pray that you would act on it, even today. Listen, friend, you don't know what's going to happen this week, next week, the next six months. Did anybody think that going home on Friday on I-89, there'd be a 30-car pileup and one person died? That could have been you. The kingdoms of this world are passing away. He offers you a place in a kingdom that will never have its end but you must renounce your allegiance to sin and self and give yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing I think about when I think about Abraham and Rahab. His salvation is generously offered to all, even this morning. Second thing I think about when I think about Abraham and Rahab is it's the costliness of faith. Both Abraham and Rahab show us that faith in Jesus Christ is costly. costly. The good works we're called to are, are costly. Abraham was willing to, to give up his own son and, and, and Rahab risked her life to hide the spies and, and send them out another way. Uh, the point for us is that, is that God demands from His children obedience and loyalty no matter the cost. And the point in James is that obedience and loyalty despite the cost. Is evidence, proof of real faith. And at this point, I hope James' bottom line is, is clear. Look at verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Can faith without works save? No. Faith and works are completely tied together like the material part of us and the immaterial part of us. You understand that? Listen, mankind, we, all of us, are comprised of the physical and the spiritual. God made man from the dust of the earth, physical, and he breathed into him the breath of life, spiritual. We are body and spirit, and those two things cannot be separated. They are necessarily intertwined. You can't take away the one and have life. Translation, faith without that works will not save because it's dead, being alone. Now I hope at this point it is evident, not only that we cannot be saved by faith if our faith is not accompanied by works, but I also hope that it's evident at this point that our works are not the basis of our salvation. Our works are not the root of our salvation, but they are the evidence of our salvation. They are the fruit of our salvation. And this allows us to look at various passages square in the face and not blink an eye. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Amen. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. John five twenty nine. Brothers and sisters, hear me. It is true. You are going to be judged according to your works. Now, your works will not save you, but your works are evidence that you have been saved by the blood of the Lamb of God. When you stand before God in the coming day He will look at your works He will look at your lives of faithfulness And fruitfulness And love for the brethren And obedience to His word Despite all costs He will see all of that And do you know what He will say? This one belongs to me This one is mine This one has been saved by the blood of the Lamb and I can tell because of how He's lived His life. So what should you do this morning? How should you respond? I think you should be zealous for good works. Titus 2 says, Jesus gave Himself to redeem us, From all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters, we should be zealous for good works. Are you zealous for the good works that God has called you to? Are you zealous for evangelism? For prayer? For hospitality? for a godly home and the necessary work it takes to make it so? How about the church? Is your heart and are your hands invested in Jesus' church? Not tangentially, but truly, centrally, really. How about your character? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions. Are you working toward character like that? How about a bridal tongue? How about generosity in giving? How about the absence of worldliness? How about submission to authority? to parents, to church leaders, to civil government? How about willingness to pay the price for your faith? Are you prepared to lose your job tomorrow out of faithfulness to Jesus Christ? Now we could keep going. Like I said earlier, good works are the totality of obedience and transformation that God, God called us to. And you might could think that's intimidating, but it's not intimidating. It's just a natural, happy, joyful, obedient response to being saved by Jesus Christ. Listen to what Luther says in his introduction to Romans. Oh, it is a living, busy, and active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it to not be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this. And is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and he looks around for faith and good works, but he knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Now, brothers and sisters, if you're not zealous for good works, I'm just going to be straight, you need to Repent. You need to repent of lazy faith. And we can all be given to that at times. It's either an amen or a no my or both. You need to repent of lazy faith if you're not zealous for good works right now. You need to repent of lazy faith. Faith should be working itself out in love in all the ways the Bible would encourage it to work itself out in, in a full-orbed way. So maybe you need to repent of lazy faith, but maybe you need to repent of faith that isn't even faith. I can imagine in a room this size there is likely some who claim Christ yet don't truly know Christ. I can imagine in a room this size there are some who say they have faith and yet the substance isn't, there, I can imagine in a room this size, there's someone like Jared Fullerton a few years ago, who in the membership class of all things, he came face to face with the reality that the power of sin had never actually been broken in his life. And to his credit, he did not run away with his fingers in his ears. He did not merely claim a profession of faith years ago or lay claim to long-term church attendance. Jared actually did business with God. He met with me and we, we worked through it and it was clear to both of us once all the facts were on the table. He didn't really know Christ. Do you know what he did? He repented of his faith that wasn't really faith. He turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in true faith. He cried out to God to be saved. And wouldn't you know, God saved him. Perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps yours is a faith that isn't really faith. Now I know the thought of that can be troubling. But don't run from the trouble. Instead, run to the cross. Run to the cross. And ask me or Brad to sit down with you. What question could be more important than this? No other question is as important as this. Nothing is more important than the question, are you right with God? Is your faith Saving faith. The only faith that saves is the faith that works, that transforms, that obeys. Anything else is false and worthless. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a straight talker. And we pray, God, this morning that you, by the power of your spirit, through your preached word, would both afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Father, thank you for the reality that we are saved on the basis of Christ's blood alone, and thank you that that faith is a real, working, transformative faith. Thank you, Father, that you not only save us, but you sanctify us, and you will bring us to yourself. He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you. We are your people. In Jesus' name.